Well, there's so much to talk about in the city. Where do we move or where do we go forward when it comes to uh, the mayor of the city? Who will become the mayor of the city? Uh, what does the budget uh, look like now that it has passed? Um, and what does that mean for the future of this city as well? I'm now joined by Daniel Sai. He is a lecturer at the Institute of Communication, Culture, Information and Technology at the University of Toronto. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you for having me. So much to talk about today, Daniel. Thanks for, for being on. Um, let's first of all talk about John Tory's legacy. He's now uh, former John Tory, for, former John Tory, former mayor of, of the city. Uh, and some he would say feels that way. He's, he's still the same. He's still John Tory, just former mayor. <laughs> let's clarify that. Um, some would say that he was soft on tackling homelessness issues in the city. Um, our parks have been taken over by tent cities. Uh, over and over again, the TTC has become a really unsafe place where a lot of people do not want to be. Uh, what do you think his legacy will be? Well, the facts and the statistics, even from Toronto Police Services, show that uh, John Tory, his legacy has been uh, uh, crime rates have gone up uh, in Toronto. In fact, uh, what we've seen is incidences related to uh, violent assaults, uh, statistically have gone up, uh, robbery, theft, uh, including rampant uh, stealing of vehicles. Uh, so uh, sexual assaults, uh, robberies. So all those things are uh, part of that legacy, I think, uh, where he has been soft on crime. And the uh, the one thing I think is, is problematic is um, it's not like this was something that uh, just came out of the open and, and it was a surprise. It's been actually a trend line even shown in the uh, major crime indicators statistics by the TPS. By the period of the last five years, there's been uh, an increasing trend of major crimes rated since, uh, involving things like sexual assaults, yeah. uh, robbery and theft, uh, auto theft. All those things have actually gone up uh, during uh his tenure, and uh, especially over the last uh, three years. And, and, you know, Daniel, again, yeah, those are all valid points. Um, you know, those who support the mayor, former mayor, would say that you can't put that onus all on uh, John Tory. Um, what would you say to that? Well, a big part of policing policy, uh, the municipal level comes from direction from the mayor's office. Yeah. And if we want to take an example, we could look at how New York City also had major problems with uh, major assaults and crimes, and they addressed it through a very proactive policy. And this goes back to uh, Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Uh, think what you will about his politics, uh, but as a mayor, he was highly effective. Mm -hmm. And their approach there was to go after what they call misdemeanor crimes. Uh, so in the U.S., that's the concept of petty crimes. Uh, we're talking about loitering, drunkenness in the streets. Um, and that actually, by going after minor crimes, that had a knock-on effect, a, a direct impact on major crimes. And so uh, the sense of fear, the sense that uh, women not wanting to ride the TTC, like all, a lot of my female friends, they don't want to be on the TTC anymore. Mm. Um, and, and that's a valid fear because if you aren't addressing petty crime, 
Uh, that allows other things like uh, assaults to flourish. And the other thing about New York is it, it took a very holistic policy where they were addressing things like mental health, uh, providing resources for homelessness to help try to combat uh, the larger crimes that would result. And I think the problem where I think John Tory dropped the ball, and this is part of his legacy, and where we are now with the TTC being so dangerous, is the fact that he wasn't addressing these petty crimes. Having the um, uh, influx in or the increase of police presence on the TTC, like he did uh, just a couple weeks ago, do you think that was, uh, you know, a move in the right direction? Did that change your perspective of how he was fighting specifically crime on the TTC? That's a little too little too late. Yeah. I think uh, if you, the, the issue here is allowing an environment for crime and uh, homelessness on the streets to flourish. Mm-hmm. And the key thing here is you need a holistic, proactive policy where you're giving police not just additional presence on the streets. People aren't afraid of the police if they're going to engage in a crime just because they're standing on the street. You have to do the New York model like Giuliani did, which is you're going after people for, uh, you know, riotous behavior in the streets, for uh, drunkenness out on the streets. Uh you know, if they're delinquent or jaywalking, those types of things, those those minor types of uh, uh, detentions are actually very important to curbing the larger crimes that occur. Because you just don't want to create an environment where people think, well, yeah, there's a cop on the street, but they're not going to do anything anyway. Mm. So that's the key differential between the, the approach where it's a bit haphazard. It's very reactive. I mean, I think one thing about Tory is, He's a he's been more or less a, uh, a reactionary type mayor. Like he he he's lacked vision. I, I think one of the things that that people kind of question is you know what is John Tory's legacy? And you can't really think of a signature accomplishment. Everything he talked about trying to accomplish, like rapid transit, that didn't come through. Uh, actually, it was the Ontario government that came up with the uh, the Ontario line for the subway. That's not a Tory initiative. You can't really think of a single initiative or legacy for Tory other than the fact that, you know, he just came in as the mayor that wasn't Rob Ford. (laughs) You know, Daniel, I hear what you're saying, but how do we how do we find a midway point with not becoming a police state? You know, I hear I hear about the police presence, but, you know, there has been a lot of pushback in the city about the increase in the police budget, which passed uh, this Wednesday. And um, the idea that there, you know, there are a lot of fundamental problems with how the police interact with certain communities, specifically black and brown. And so, uh, you know, while there is a, a serious issue in our city when it comes to crime, how do we also um, fix the relations between the city and so many groups in uh, in the city who don't trust the police and would see the increase in this kind of police state um, as being uh, a, a walk in the in the wrong direction. You have to embed the police in the communities that they're serving, uh, whether they're 
black, brown, or whatever the community is, LGBTQ+, that is the key. If you want to uh, avoid this sense of the police is against us, you have to make them part of those communities. Uh, that also requires a lot of communication as well. It, it, and, and I think if people know that the police are coming from a policy of trying to make things safe and they and because they have a directive, if, if the if the mayor was clear on what the police are doing out there on the streets, you know, it's not just a matter of having more police. But if the mayor comes out and says they're going to be part of your communities and not only that, their mandate is to go after these minor crimes in order to ensure that uh, the big crimes don't happen. People know where they're coming from and that if that line of communication is is open and the police are transparent, and this is where the distress comes, it's the lack of transparency and the feeling that the police uh, are just doing things unilaterally. But if you have a, a embedded approach, which other communities have, have adopted, like New York, I think that's a better way to do it. And I think that's one of the things that uh, the mayor hasn't... Uh, actually taken up as a priority. I think that's one of his his failings or shortfalls is, yes, there have been issues where the police have overstepped their boundaries in a few incidences where uh, it appears it's targeted towards uh, black and brown. And I think the mayor should have shown some leadership and stepped up and addressed it immediately and had a policy and a plan in place. And the fact that it took so long, uh, you know, we're into year nine. Uh, I, I think it was just it just took too long. Yeah. I think it's more than just a few instances. You know, we do remember the report that came out last year by the police stating that there's a disproportionate amount of uh, targeted um, uh, enforcement towards black and brown people within the city. I, I think it's a bigger issue that has to be dealt with more than just embedding, but really re-educating our police uh, services and system. Uh, we can't forget the budget meeting that also happened this past week. Wow, what <laughs> what an interesting uh, experience to watch that budget this week, this past week, Daniel, um, and to see all that happened there. Um, that also, uh, we also saw the passing of the increase to the property tax and the building levy, which ensures that Torontonians' taxes will go up by 7% as well as um, the vacant home tax uh, that doesn't get a lot of attention. That wasn't in the budget, but it's it's a part of this conversation about uh, the fact that homeowners um, are now going to be forced to either sell, rent, or pay this tax for their properties. And, and you've said that you don't, haven't seen this work really in other cities in the country. About this for the Globe Mail and uh, this the originator of this whole idea was Vancouver. So in Vancouver, they had, uh, they've had the empty homes tax for, uh, since 2019, yeah. uh, and actually 2018. And what was really interesting is they thought there would be 10,000 empty homes that would be found as part of this tax. And it turned out there was only 2,500. Wow. And they also found the following year, uh, so 2018 is when it first started. And then 2019, Vancouver found there was only a drop of maybe 600 extra units that went into the market because of this tax. And the problem with that is in Vancouver, they need 72,000 new homes a year. Hmm. So this tax, which is implemented on a city of over a million people, where everybody that owns a home 
has to file this empty homes tax form. And if you don't, and if you're late, uh, you pay a fine, which is works out to like 100, 150 bucks. And what was interesting is it did nothing in terms of increasing the vacancy rate. Uh, there was, if anything, only a negligible increase. And it hasn't stopped Toronto from trying to adopt the same futile, pointless law here. Yeah. I, I found your piece in the Globe interesting. And, you know, as we talk about ways to uh, create growth and uh, home ownership within our city, because that, that was part of the reason why um, this this homeowner or empty homes tax was instituted was to try to get more properties on the market in the market. You say that first time home buyers should face less onerous stress tests um, when qualifying for mortgages. How do you see that as being beneficial? Well, I think the way we had our lending system set up, uh, you know, only a couple years ago, actually last year, uh, you could get a mortgage for under 1%. Yeah. Uh, HSBC was offering 0.99% mortgages. And so that basically means you're getting your, your money for free. Mm. And that's why when you have cheap money for loans, that people are able to get into these bidding wars and they keep escalating the prices. Uh, and, and, and that cheap money results in inflated home pricing. Because there's nothing really behind it other than the fact that people are able to buy these things with uh, very, very small or negligible interest rates. And so, you know, in Toronto, we need 100,000 new homes every year to meet the demand of immigrants. We get 118,000 new immigrants every year. We, and Ontario needs a million homes within the decade to, or in order to meet that that huge housing requirements. And so this uh, housing affordability crisis is driven largely due to cheap money and the fact that we've allowed a lot of um, investors to buy up homes with this cheap interest rate. And so you should really have a different system in place for those who are like legit hardworking families, uh, people who just want to have a, a home uh, and, and have the benefit of home ownership like our parents and everybody else. And they're not getting that break. They're competing against people that have six, seven, eight, ten units. They have money coming from, uh, uh, you know, in many cases outside of the country. And that is problematic because it squeezes out legit hardworking families in favor of uh, investors who aren't really contributing much to society other than buying up people's properties. Uh, we have, we have uh, large conglomerates now uh, that even here in Canada, and their sole purpose is to buy up family homes and to turn them into multi-unit uh, rentals. That's not helping home ownership when you allow that type of investment uh, in this country. We should really be favoring and creating a system here with our banking, and we can uh, for really families that uh, deserve to have at least, you know, their own home. How do you enforce that when, again, you know, it's, we, it, this is just about capital. It's about if you have the money, you get a house. I mean, how do you enforce that? I think it's a great idea. Um, I, you know, I, my younger brother was 
desperately looking for a home uh, last year and had to go far out of the GTA to find one that he and his uh, girlfriend could afford. Um, yeah, how do you how do you enforce this idea? Well, they're already trying to do this right now in Ontario with uh, trying to uh, penalize or tax non-resident uh, foreign buyers yep. and to prevent them from being able to buy homes. That That's actually interesting because there's there's some questions about the constitutionality of that uh, because you have like people who are here on work permits. And uh, so there's a question about what type of exceptions can be made um, if you are foreign but not really foreign mm -hmm. you're actually contributing to the country or you're bringing you know jobs or investment here so should those individuals be uh blocked out from uh buying homes uh so the way that it can be done is actually legally through uh ontario the province has the authority to kind of determine who can bid who can be part of the the purchasing process um the federally it's a bit problematic because they're also looking at doing a a federal tax on non-residents. So if you are a non-resident and you want to uh, purchase a home, you just pay the extra tax. Mm. And that to me sounds more like a tax grab than a real deterrent on foreign buyers. I think you just have to be a little bit more uh, aggressive legally uh, where the province steps up and says, you know, certain categories of individuals who don't deserve uh, beneficial or preferential treatment and purchasing, uh, those ones don't get to play. But the ones who are legit, hardworking families, they get a chance to bid on homes. Daniel, I have about two minutes left. want to talk really quickly about the Emergencies Act uh, report. Justice Paul Rouleau says the federal government did meet the threshold to trigger the Emergencies Act. Was Ottawa right or wrong to invoke the Emergencies Act, do you think? Well, look at his decision. It is written by a lawyer for sure. <laughs> he says, basically, they what they did was legal, but morally, probably wasn't the right thing uh, because they created the conditions for it. Mm. This was a combination of the uh, federal government uh, being inept, along with the Ontario government, uh, the Doug Ford, not stepping up at the right time. Mm -hmm. And uh, he blames everybody. The judge blames everyone. He blames the government uh, of Ontario. He blames uh, the federal government. And he also goes after CSIS. He goes after the RCMP and the Ottawa police uh, and particularly their chief. So everyone gets some blame in that. Yep. Uh, but the reality is, is, yes, they were allowed to do it legally. But in terms of uh, who's the blame, all of those guys are at fault. Thanks so much, Daniel, for your time today. Great insights.